Ryan Holtz is a social media and creative marketing agency owner, husband, father, DJ, global citizen, keynote speaker, and is proud to bring you the Ryan Holtz Show Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Ryan Holtz Show podcast. Oh, this this one is going to be extremely good. Uh, I'm very excited. Um, our show has done very, very well. And, um, you know, I brought up sponsorship a lot and it's been it's been a heavy topic because usually when you bring on sponsors and stuff like that and you advertise, you have to kind of dictate what they want you to say and and all this good stuff and as we said before we've had lots of companies reach out but we just feeling like the vibe was not there and rather than somebody just writing a check we wanted somebody who has expertise in their field to actually donate some of their time come on educate our audience educate our listeners and just kind of be a part of the show our show is extremely impactful curiosity is our mandate but our whole goal of our show is to make somebody feel like they have a brave and safe space to really dive deep, dig deep inside themselves, look at themselves, and kind of pretend that they're just a fly on the wall watching two friends talk and have a great conversation. A lot of the best interviewers I've ever seen in the world never ever make their guests feel like they're kind of talking at them, but it's just two friends talking, having a great conversation. And I think this is extremely important. That being said, we have Jordana Goldlist, which is also aka the Goldlist Special, which is also aka... Uh, a criminal uh, law defense practice owner and operator out of Toronto who I had on as a guest, which was just supposed to be like an episode. And then to be quite frank, I think her and I really vibe. We got along. I think her message and what she has to say uh, goes way past one episode and is kind of surrounded by life, both personally and professionally. And uh, Jordan and I talked and uh, Jordan is going to be sponsoring one of our Monday episodes each month. And not only is she sponsoring it, but she's going to be coming on and, and chatting. We're going to be talking about subjects of, you know, kind of her backstory because I think a lot of people are seeing her success now. She just bought a supercar and all these fancy things and she has all the material and all that. But she's got a long road prior to all this um, that has brought her to this. And I think that most of the learning is done there, not where you're at now. And I think you have a lot to offer us. So Jordana, first off, welcome to the show. Um, Thanks, please, please tell everybody just a little bit about yourself and then kind of, you know, what your message is and why you've decided to sponsor an episode. And we're super jacked, but just kind of, you know, drop the 911 on people about who you are and what you do. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned today, I'm a, a criminal defense lawyer. I operate my own practice out of downtown Toronto with a focus on murder, guns and drugs. So real high risk litigation. Um, I've spent 10 years building myself up to the practice that I have now and, you know, with the view to having all those fun little toys and the supercars and the whatever collection of watches. But all of that didn't seem as important once I had them. And for me, what's important now is helping to educate people in two important respects. One, uh, I speak a lot about the criminal justice system as a trap that involves young people and, and people in their early 20s and people that are disenfranchised and they end up getting stuck without realizing that's what's happening. And so I, I do a lot of work in the community now trying to educate people and helping them make better choices so they don't get stuck in that revolving door. And also for people who are coming out of that trap or struggling to really transform their lives, I want to educate them through example that you actually can live a pro-social life after you've been through the system. 
uh, and I have personal experience of that as a former high school dropout who was homeless throughout most of my teens. I spent most of my teens struggling on the streets with addictions and really had to build myself up through my 20s. I didn't get to law school until I was 25, 27 when I graduated, 28 when I really started working. And so for me, I, I want to lead by example to say that your life isn't foreclosed just because you've made some bad choices or gone off on the wrong direction early on. Um, and just really highlighting that, you know, people can come through that. But once you do, I feel like there's a social obligation to do something important with that that goes above and beyond, you know, a really amazing collection of Louis Vuitton purses. So, so that's really what I'm about today is trying to help people avoid those pitfalls and or lead uh, sort of by example that you can come through. What do you think, you know, it's interesting because if you look on your Instagram and stuff, and one of the reasons we initially started talking is you, you know, you came through my Instagram feed and it was multiple times. And I go back to that Bruce MacArthur case because I have a, a sick obsession with true crime. I, the, I've watched true crime shows and detective shows and all this since I was like a kid. It's something that to this day mesmerizes me. And then I, I think I see you on CBC giving commentary on the case. And then all of a sudden I seen you again which was really odd on Instagram and you're giving your TED talk. But, and then I started going through your grid and I'm like, what's all this Tupac and Biggie and and all these like different characters in this hip hop stuff. And it's interesting because I was like, who is this person? And I'm like, isn't she like Jewish? And I'm like, I'm, what, what is happening here? I found it <laughs> extremely uh, cool, but we use the term culture vulching. And it's interesting because, you know, we, we talked about like bravado. We talked about hip hop music. We talked about, you know, in, in the in the court system, perception can be reality, you know, and, and that is the truth. You are somebody who says, you know, I really like this culture. I really do kind of come from the street. I've had a lot of pitfalls and struggles. So it is in your DNA, but you've also chose to kind of try to make yourself into the culture, be a part of the culture, and then also give back to the culture. So for you, how does that take form? Why is it that just your life? Is it your DNA? Why? Like, how does that blend into you? So I, for me, hip hop culture started playing basketball. I I was a only child growing up. And so I spent a lot of time playing out in the neighborhood, loved sports, picked up on any sport possible. But for me, it was like a love of basketball. And then I think about nine or 10 years old, I started playing like on the community courts. And that's where I discovered hip hop. And I'm about to date myself, but it was NWA and Eazy -E and Public Enemy on cassette tape. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and I just loved it. It just, you know, it, it wasn't about racial divide, but by the same token, I was learning about a world I knew nothing about and that I didn't really understand. I grew up in a very multicultural community where race really wasn't an issue, right? My, mm. my friends that I brought home were multicultural. I had a good friend who was black, good friend who was Indian. My first crush was a brown guy. Like it didn't really, <laughs> you know, matter to me. Uh, and I didn't appreciate what that meant for other people in other places and other cultures. And so I started learning about that, you know, through hip hop and still love the music and love the aggression. And it really just stuck with me. I did, you know, my, my love of hip hop into high school. And, mm. you know, luckily because I transferred high schools for grade nine and was in a whole different community. I went from a very suburban community north of Toronto and I moved my whole life downtown and was now attending uh, very much an urban high school where thank God I liked hip hop and thank God I play basketball because that's really where I, I was able to intertwine and connect with some of my classmates or I otherwise probably would have been a complete outcast in a new school uh, having just been transferred to a group home and so for me 
that continued to be a source of connection to other people. And that's really just carried through throughout my life. Um, you know, it's something that I can relate to. I understand the struggles. I love hearing about those personal struggles, even if it wasn't my experience per se. I experienced a side of it and it also allowed me to understand where, you know, some of the life that my clients are coming from as well, because some of them are obviously very much involved in the type of activities that are being uh, described through hip hop culture. And so I've, I've gotten a taste of it from sort of all sides mm. and, and my love of it still continues. I've got a, a Wu-Tang interpretation, yeah. you know, that was done. It was a, a gift from Justin Bua. Um, but it's a, a custom piece of his that, that I love. And so it continues to be, you know, very much part of my life. Wu-Tang, cream calendars rule everything around me. Dollar, Calendar dollar bills, day. yo, no <laughs> doubt. Um, well, you being a lawyer, I mean, time is everything. So calendars do rule everything around you. And it's interesting. Do you, do you feel like a lot of the clients that you represent, especially, you know, kind of, you know, making a bad decision, going down the wrong path? It starts at the home life and and the culture and kind of the community or lack of father figures, lack of mothers, lack of just that support that parents can kind of provide. Or do you feel it's a systemic style issue or where would you say? Because, I mean, we're really kind of focusing on that 13 to 17 year old child person who's kind of forming themselves, trying to identify with who the heck they are. And then they're also impacted heavily where their environment is. And, you know, if we study the wealthiest zip codes in the world and then the poorest zip codes in the world, both of them run parallel but have very huge similarities within their own community. And I hate to say it, but it turns into an assembly line where, you know, if you're if you grew up broke and you couldn't eat, that's going to make you do certain things. It's going to expose you to different, you know, choices and challenges. You know, not every crime is committed by bad a bad person i never thought i never ever thought that i i think good people can make bad choices you know so what is your interpretation of that oh a hundred percent and it's certainly something that you know that concept is what my my tedx talk was based around is that we can't judge people by the titles that they hold you know, be it good or bad, right? Judges don't necessarily um, require a person to be a good person. And likewise, you know, most of the people that I represent who could easily be branded as criminals just by virtue of their record are really phenomenal, hardworking, loyal, trustworthy individuals. They just happen to, you know, sell drugs or commit robberies in order to feed themselves. And so I agree with you for sure. Uh, you know, financial disadvantages are probably one of the leading uh, reasons that people are out committing criminal offenses and continue to commit criminal offenses because even after you know a few prison sentences and they want to make better choices, they're now stuck with a criminal record that tells future employers that they can't be trusted. And so that's part of the trap that we set for people. You know, we're, we're setting people up from the get-go to be involved in criminal activity and then labeling them as criminals and saying they shouldn't be trusted. Uh, and we really have to fix the system on both sides for people who are just entering the system so that we figure out, you know, what the motivating factor is. And I, I agree with you in the sense of a lot if we look geographically at where certain crimes are committed, they're distinctly tied to someone's economic mm. situation. But that's not always the case. You know, I have 
uh, some clients whose mothers come to me and say, listen, I've done everything I can. I'm working so hard. We live in a nice house. We're in a good neighborhood. He's got food on his table. There's no reason for him to be out, you know, committing these offenses. I don't know where I went wrong here. Uh, oftentimes those are situations where there's no father figure mm. and the father figure becomes, you know, the boys on the block that are selling crack. And so I, I think that you really hit an important factor when you said, you know, lack of, of father figure. Um, it's amazing to me how many offenders are, are raised in single parent households, even with mom doing the absolute best. I think I've had one or two occasions where it was a single father situation and, and same, you know, well-intentioned, hardworking, really mm. fantastic people. Um, there's just this this gap in the person's upbringing that's not their fault. And so I, I do think that plays a huge part. Um, I have clients who come from, you know, horrific backgrounds of abuse throughout their childhood. Um, most of the more serious violent offenders that I've represented, where it's like repeated instances of serious violence, uh, have childhood sexual trauma in yeah. their past. Yeah. So that's certainly some, that's certainly like a common theme. And then there's situations where you've got someone who was raised in, you know, a perfectly healthy, well-balanced environment who's just chosen a different path. Uh, addictions and mental health certainly play a part. I think for females, lack of self-esteem is huge. It's unbelievable to me the decisions some young women make, especially when we're talking about that 14 to 17 year old gap. Um, to not believe in yourself and to look at, you know, to look for that sort of gratification from men. Mm. Um, the, the choices they're making to seek that gratification, be it selling drugs, carrying out robberies, getting involved in prostitution. Uh, these are, you know, common decisions that I see being made by women who are really just looking to feel loved. Mm. And that's, I think, a sad reflection on where we're at in society. Well, you brought it. You brought it up on your Instagram for your birthday, and you posted a picture of yourself ten years ago. <laughs> you look like trouble, though. You did. I was looking at. I was like, she looks like trouble back there. She got yeah, some. Edge. She, she got some edge back there. She got some edge. You got those. You got those <laughs> eyes that are. I call it the the watcher eyes. You got those little. Like, I see you. I'm like, oh, I always look at somebody's eyes. Like one of those, you know, backdoor alley people watching everything, right? Um, but. <laughs> You know, you you even brought up about the relationships that you were in, you know, that and, and you, you said something very vulnerable where you said, you know, I, too, was was somebody who, you know, not not in terms of being influenced, but fell fell to that wayside of, you know, maybe wanting validation, putting up with, you know, abuse of whatever kind just to maybe stay in a relationship, but realize even yourself that this is not going to take me to where I want to go. So for you, how do you get yourself out of that? What's like, how did you choose that? Because you need to make a choice to, to make a change. And you did that. And I'm assuming you probably did that at several turning points of your life, you know, on your journey to where you are now. Uh, absolutely. So I had said on my Instagram that, you know, I was reflecting on what life was like in the in the days leading up to me turning 30. Mm -hmm. Um and how I felt like 30 was like, oh my God, that's it. That's the end of life. Meanwhile, it was really just the beginning. I couldn't appreciate that. And it's something you can never appreciate until you're you're looking backwards. Um, but yeah, I had just ended a, a very abusive, controlling four-year relationship that I got into the summer before I started law school. Um, but my first year in law school was a real turning point for my entire life, right? I did a, a complete 180 my first semester. I 
changed everything about what my life had been about up until that point. And so the relationship was with someone who had convinced me that without them, I would be going back to the person that I was. And they were really, they became my like sort of lifeline mm. um, from a social perspective. And so really all I had was like the relationship, the gym and school. And that was my whole life for three years. And so I came out of law school and I got, you know, this degree and I felt great. Um, but I had put myself in a situation where I was like completely dictated by the needs of someone else. And that's so unhealthy. Mm. And it, it took me um, it took me about a year after law school realizing that this isn't good for me. I had lost who I was, you know, mm. all of the intrinsic parts of my own character had really dissipated during the course of the relationship. Um, try getting them back. It became a power struggle. And I just, I just cut it and said, I, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. I need to regain and really find out who, who I was and what I was about. Um, and so really that's what it takes for anyone to make any major change in their life, right? There's nothing significant about that. It's a matter of, you know, recognizing this isn't healthy for me and I deserve to be, you know, either with someone or engaging in activity that's going to actually promote where I'm heading in life. Uh, and once you make that decision, you, I, at least for me, I cut it off and I walk away. Well, you said you said in our first conversation, I remember you said you're like, you know, my friends said, you know, my friends know about me that I'm not the overly emotional type of person. And if somebody crosses me purposely or tries to, you know, harm me just in terms of, you know, backstabbing, whatever, um, purposely, you're like, oh, there's no beef. It's just done. You're like, there's, just, yeah. there's no going back. I don't That's beef it. with anybody. It's done. And it's interesting because is that is that kind of a fail safe that you built into yourself based on your experiences? Is that something you is that a way that you learn how to cope with those situations? Or is that just somebody is that just a, a way you've always been? Because I think it's it's interesting, right? I think and this whole conversation, this whole thing for everybody's listening. My biggest thing for Jordana is that people get to a certain point of life and they often go back and retrace their steps and fill in the gaps along the way. And sometimes people do that a little too late in their life, in my opinion. And it's almost like, even for me, when I when I deal with somebody or talk to somebody, I became a much better listener. If somebody's 75 years old and has done well in business and life, I just shut up. I just listen. I'm listening for right. all the cues. Like, I'm a sponge when it comes to that. But, you know, a lot of people are apprehensive to talk about their journey, even when they're 75, even when they're 80. Right. Things that made them feel terrible 40 years ago, they still can't talk about. And the fact that you're, you know, kind of tracing back, circling back and doing that, but then kind of filling in the gaps. What, how do you do that? And again, for those teenagers that are 13 to 17, that basically we're talking about how we felt when we were that age and that confusion maybe the lack of support, maybe the bad environment, abuse, all these different things where you can't even process that, in my opinion, at that age, your mind is still developing from an anatomical perspective. How do you do that? Like, what are some of the things that kind of said, okay, Jordana, like you really got to have some systems in place. You got to make sure that you have great people in your life. You got to make sure you have a filter process for the crappy people that are just sucking things like weeds. How do you do that? Well, Big I mean, question. I certainly didn't get, I, I didn't get to do that. I didn't start doing that until I was much later in life, right? 13 to 17 for me was an absolute mess. Yeah. Um, you know, 13, I was like, 
I was divided. I was really, I was fantastic in school. I was a straight A student. I was on the starting line of my school's basketball team. I had good friends. Uh, I wasn't hanging out with a bad crowd. I was the bad seed in the crowd. I was the one that wanted to like get in trouble and, you know, run around and do things we weren't supposed to do. Um, if anything, you know, I was surrounded by people who really wanted to do better, but I had such internal conflict that I really didn't know what to do with it. And so I, I was drinking, I was using drugs, I was engaging in self-harm. And so for me, it was like, I was split between these two worlds and it was an internal struggle that was competing with the external struggle. And and that carried on until, you know, 17 for me, when we're talking about 13 to 17, 17, it really peaked, right? By 17, you know, homeless high school dropout, junkie, like whatever, you know, name you want to put on it. I was on the way to rock bottom, though I hadn't hit it yet. Um, and basically everyone around me was just waiting to see where that bottom was and whether or not I could ever pull out of it. And you know, now you, you talk about me going back and talking openly about, you know, some of the more difficult experiences that I've had through life. I feel like I pulled myself out and not just a little, you know, I've managed to create a really phenomenal life um, for myself and surround myself with some incredible people. But the whole point of being that successful was to hopefully go back and help others, right? Because what was the point of me being in that situation and going through that kind of pain if I can't do something productive with it. And that's really how I look at it, right? I want to be able to use that not just to my own benefit, which I do, but teach other people how to use their struggles to their benefit. Mm. And I feel like that's sort of the missing piece, right? Because there's only so many cars I can drive at the same time. There's only so many watches I can wear and shit that I can buy. But yeah. the reality is if I can't use the experience and the success that I now have to try to help others and help educate others and pull through it, uh, really what's the point? And so I don't know that you can say to a 15 year old, you need to choose better friends. But my goal is that, you know, I, I would hope that people that are struggling realize that the struggle doesn't last, right? Mm -hmm. Those feelings that conflict doesn't actually stay with you, but the decisions you make during those ages do, right? Mm -hmm. You will always have the repercussions of the acts of, of the actions that you take now. And so really when we talk about what the message would be to someone in that age, it's like, I'm not going to tell you what to do because God knows you're not going to listen. <laughs> um, but you should know that the decisions that you make now, you know, they really do stick with you, right? Mm -hmm. I've got you know, I've got clients that say to me they got involved in selling drugs at, you know, 16, 17 years old and they're in their early 30s and they're struggling to leave that life or they feel like they can't leave that life. Mm. You know, they haven't graduated high school yet and they're in their early 30s or late 20s and they've got this horrible criminal record because they didn't fight their charges and they pled mm. guilty just to get out, you know, which in and of itself is a tragedy. But like the reality is the decisions that you're making as you're coming up into uh, through your adolescence they really do last and it's a question of taking a minute to think about what you're doing you're some you're somebody that you know you literally were on the you were your client <laughs> you were your client yeah. literally which is really yeah. interesting so how do you like where does the line for you come like how do you separate your past and the fact that you're like you were your client and then come into the, I'm a lawyer, I'm going to defend who I was based on the situation that they were in. Like, it's it's really murky in a way. It's very deep. There's some jadedness happening in there. I just, like, how do you, how do you, 
do you sit with your client and talk to them at a street level? Do you think that's where you relate or are you more of a, you know, a mother figure where it's like, oh, God, I've no. been in your shoes. <laughs> yeah. No, or you're no, just no, like, no, yo, no. man. <laughs> no, but like, no. how do you how do you juggle all that? It's very it's very entrenched, you know, like you're literally representing who you were. So there's got to be some personal attachment to a case to some degree, I would imagine. You know, and then the there's, fact that there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot. I mean, I, I have one uh, tragic case right now with the young woman, um, serious addiction issues who um, uh, was involved in a, a impaired driving caused death and mm. accidentally I say accidentally, but killed another person while driving impaired. Yeah. And. I think that my experience in knowing that that could easily have been me, you know, some years ago is what makes me so passionate about fighting to give her another chance. Mm. And, you know, I see what she's done. I mean, this incident totally changed her, totally woke her up. Uh, she's doing everything she can to fight for her own sobriety and wants to help other people. Like it really was a game changer for her. And I think that, you know, that sort of closeness certainly doesn't make me a mother. I've never uh, put myself in the mother role with my clients. And in fact, I tell them from the first conversation, I am not your therapist. I am not here to provide emotional support. Mm. Quite the opposite, I think, in order for me to do the job that I do and think about things through, you know, the eye of what the law requires, not what I necessarily think should happen. Yeah. Um, I need to have those walls up. And so... I think that my experience some in some situations makes me more passionate about what I'm arguing for because I can understand how easy it is to make such a stupid and tragic mistake. Yeah. And so I, I think that it makes me, yeah, I, I would say more passionate in some situations. And in some situations, it makes me more dispassionate and more clinical. Uh, for example, if I, you know, have a, a alleged victim to cross-examine, and I think that they could have made an escape far more easy and made other choices for themselves instead of blaming other people. And so sometimes my own experience makes me uh, less compassionate mm. for the people that I encounter. And it makes me more compassionate uh, for the situations of some of my clients where they've made choices that society would just frown upon. And I don't necessarily have to agree with those choices, but I understand the backdrop to them. And rather than saying, hey, I was there before because I really don't have those conversations with my clients, they also know that they can tell me anything and I'm not going to judge them as people. Right. I, I have, you know, I've had represented clients in the past that have killed people. And that's certainly never been my experience. But I can understand from a psychological perspective, you know, some of the factors that were at play, especially if there was drugs involved, especially if you're coming from certain cultural backgrounds where, you know, that's something that's encouraged. Um, and so rather than, you know, judging or being scared of them, like I get to know them as people and I don't ask about the circumstances of the case until they're willing to tell me, you know, when you can build up that trust and understand the need to build up that rapport before you start demanding to know answers to their personal life. Mm. And so I, I think, you know, my background doesn't necessarily put me in a different role, but it allows me to have a different perspective on the case. And that's what I capitalize on. Yeah. you Well, you have objectivity, but you have such a great perspective because you've lived it, right? So you and I, if we take 13 years old, 13 to 17, you and I are very different. 13, 
I lost my mom, which was my tragedy. That was my that was my tough point. I was raised by a single mom, so I didn't have a dad in the in the in the in the, in the you know in the, in the picture. And I think for me, even back then, you did get some racism. I didn't grow up in Toronto, so I grew up out in Edmonton, where you you know I think back, I was born in '84. It's like it was multicultural, but not to the degree of it wasn't a melting pot like Toronto was. So you, you dealt with a lot of different stuff. But and I was I'm half Jamaican, half German. But if the cops see right. me running down the street, they're not like, "There's that German guy!" Like they're just, not, they're just I'm a black dude. Like I'm a, I'm a brother right. to society. But when you're growing up, and I think this is interesting too, is that people who are mixed or biracial or mulatto, whatever the heck you want to call it, I can speak to it because I'm a black dude, but I'm I'm also half German. So it's weird because I do have that perspective of like I guess a white person, but then I also have the perspective of a of a black person. But I spent a lot of years kind of figuring out. Well, what side of like where do like where do I identify with? I'm a mix. I mean, I don't even know. Like my mom was green-eyed, brown-haired and and white, you know? Like and then my dad, which I knew was, you know, he's a straight black dude, but at 13 when that happened, I didn't go down the drug route, but it was right there. I could have started selling drugs. I had nothing. I went the sports route, you know, and I never went down, you know, I never got arrested. I I figured out very quickly how to maneuver life because I didn't really have a lot of support. So, you know, I look at you where you did, you did do some crazy stuff. And if I was to talk to a 13 to 17 year old, which I do when I go and talk in schools and stuff, and you're right, you have to be very cautious on how you talk and it has to be relatable. And a lot of them are kind of like, yo, man, I'm on my Snapchat right now. Like get to the point. But what I say to them is, is that resiliency. And I kind of say to them, you really have to think of things a little bit differently. Um, I know you're in this situation right now and it's it's hell on earth. And even if somebody says that's not a big problem to them, it's world class problem. Like it's a big issue. And I tell them to really be patient with themselves and to really try to understand the problem that they're in. Very direct, you know. And for me, I think that that 13 to 17 year old is one of the most forming um, parts of your life that will dictate and stay with you for the better course of your adulthood. Like you said, I got a client started dealing drugs at 17. This stuff's still haunting them in their early 30s. High school diploma, criminal records, these things, these decisions you make will ultimately guide you and affect you forever. School systems, in my opinion, have a lot to play in this whole situation too because when I go to school, how is Shakespeare going to help me fucking understand what I need to do to, to like make money and survive and right. all that. I don't give a shit about chemistry if I'm going home and I have no support. Or geometry? Do you care well, about the, the angle of a triangle if you don't understand how no. credit card systems work? Yes, I know. Yes, yes. But I think and that's all part of the trap. That's the trap. That's the trap. I think that that's all part of the trap is how we educate people in certain communities. We expect, you know, in affluent communities, kids don't have to worry about interest rate on their credit card if Mm. mommy and daddy are paying off that credit card on a monthly basis right if they're set to inherit the family business who cares or you know that they're going to get their life lessons on managing their money at home you don't have that in more disadvantaged communities you you know i speak to kids sometimes where uh, like i do work in certain shelters and i try to teach like positive money management and they don't even understand that if you don't pay off your credit card balance in full you're charged interest on the full amount as opposed to just whatever balance is left that's like a basic 
concept that people aren't being taught and yet we're teaching them you know the angle of a triangle really and and i think that's all part of you know another system that's keeping people stuck so financial literacy is is something that's big right and i think that your average like it's even like student loans right we could get in the conversation about student loans i mean my god right you got you got people who are doing really well right now that are still paying off med school loans and they've been a practicing doctor for like a decade right absolutely it's crazy so for you if you go 13 to 17 how did you think about money what was money to you you know was money oh, getting your my, next money to your me next, was your, it's a, no like was what? money was money was money getting your next i don't know your next set of shoes or like what 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 did money mean to you was it a gateway to go and do drug was it a gateway to do something that you like was it you know you didn't really give a crap about money no i, I care a lot about money i started working when i was 12 <laughs> at 12 years yep. old i started working in a bakery um because i wanted to buy my own clothing that my parents wouldn't let me wear because i wore big baggy skater clothes and uh my parents made it clear that if i was going to dress like that i had to buy my own clothing and i wanted to buy my own cigarettes because i started smoking when i was 12 years old so at yep. 12 years old, I started working in a bakery so that I could buy those two things for myself. And I did. And I became financially independent. And for me, I realized that I could do what I wanted if I could afford to do what I wanted. Mm. Right. Otherwise, I was dependent on my parents. Like if I if I couldn't you know, pay for it, then I had to do things their way. And I never wanted to do things anyone else's mm. way. And so at a very young age, I learned to connect money with freedom. And for me, that's all I wanted. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I realized, you know, at, at 12 and 13, that having money gave me that freedom. Um, I wasn't allowed to work when I was in the group home. So from 14 to like 15 and a half, I was there for a year and a half. I couldn't work anywhere. And I had no freedom in a part because of their rules, but because I, I couldn't afford anything else anyways. And then when I came back home, uh, again, I had to find a job. I was, I was smoking weed. I was smoking cigarettes. I wanted to go out and party. And so money wasn't about accumulation per se but it was the freedom to come and go as I please and do whatever I wanted. And it was only uh, when I started, you know, using more drugs and getting kicked out of my house that it became a, a basic tool of survival. And so and so then it was really about getting enough that I needed just to get by um, throughout, you know, 17, probably into 18. And then when I started, you know, working again, it became more about accumulation. And then it really became about savings because then I wanted sort of ultimate freedom. I wanted to have a car. Eventually I wanted my own home. And so I started saving and I still have more of that mentality. I, I not in debt. I've never been in credit card debt. I've never been that person that wants to spend more than I have or, or does. And whenever, you know, I make money, I'm, I'm saving money because I want the next big thing. Mm. Um, and so it, I think in a sense, it's still about, I still connect money with freedom. Mm. So at 12, when you worked, you took freedom though with the money and then also went down a bad road with it. Correct? Yes. Now, why do you think you went down a bad road with the freedom that you had from with the money? And I'm just trying to place you back at 13 to 17. Is that just because right. of character? Well, is it because of, are you, is there? I was already be... on that bad road. Okay. Right? Like that sort of, that sort of like internal struggle started for me even before then. It started for me probably like 11 or 12. Mm. And so I had this sort of like dark side in any event. And 
you know, it sort of went hand in hand that the lifestyle that I was living needed that money in order for me to enjoy it. And so I don't think that it was the money itself that propelled me down that road and to make bad choices. I think I was already making bad choices and, and everything sort of went towards them. Um, why? Until why do you think you're making the bad choices? Like why? Well, Emotional environment? Just because if we're yeah, placing it, was yeah, it was like emotional, psychological, uh, a totally complete inability to communicate feelings. Mm. Started from when I was a really young child, and so by the time I got to eleven and twelve, I I didn't talk. I didn't talk about how I felt about anything. Mm, yeah. uh, so I turned to drugs just to not feel really, or to change the way that I was feeling, uh, as opposed to actually like working through them. It was more emotional upheaval than anything. Interesting. So you, because you sound really smart. You sound smart at twelve. You sound smart at thirteen, fourteen. Like oh, you, oh, you, don't, no, no. don't get me wrong. Yeah, I did not have anywhere near the level of self awareness and and understanding that I that I do now, right? But I think a lot I didn't of thirteen. Get it. To at twelve years old, I was just like angry and depressed and sad, and you know, somewhere along the way, I realized that like people drink vodka to make themselves feel better. And then by the time I was 13, I was, you know, being medicated by a psychiatrist and realized that like mixing, you know, some of what she was, what I was being prescribed with vodka tequila really changed the way I felt. And I liked that change. So I just experimented with different substances mm. um, at a very, very young age, you know, and, and that accumulated into a, a really significant drug addiction by the time I was 16. But let's but see judgment and being um, like emotionally intelligent or intellectually intelligent. See, I, I don't think a lot of 13 to 17 year olds like I, th- I remember when I was 13, 17, everybody would tell, oh, you're a teenager. You're already getting put in a box. It was, you know, go to school, pick a career. That's to me is when the trap really starts to happen. Right. Even if you come from a good home of, of, of parents, when you're born into this world, you're born in as a dreamer opportunities you see the world in a very three-dimensional and the moment you start getting into school boom you're told to not go too big not go too wide you need to stick with the course load everything becomes an assembly line one teacher said it to me best this is a university professor he said you know what grade 12 is man you know when you're done high school it's an assembly line it's an assembly line you had a student number you came in, you did your grade, you know, high schools get money. High schools get money for every credit that, that, that a graduate gets. It's a business. And then you get whisked away to another business. Could you imagine if you were learning uh, stocks, bonds, uh, you know, uh, HELOCs, home equity line of credits in grade 10? Would you really go drop 45, 50, 75 grand in university? Because here's what you would think about university. What's the return on this investment? Right. Come on, right? And then you're thinking, oh my God, the government's going to give me grants, but then there's going to be an interest associated with this loan. This is what I'm saying. So for you, though, in that age range, you're 13 to 17 years old, but to me, you sound quite smart because you're so cognitive of the fact that you weren't feeling and that you were using other things to get away from that, right? And that's what I'm saying for, for, for people or 13 to 17 year olds that would hear this, they're feeling all these same things too, where Sarah, Jordan, whoever's out there listening, and they're like, yeah, I'm doing this, 
but I'm still thinking about this. There's so many kids out there I get messages from, and they're literally like, Ryan, I under like I, I I'm thinking of life this way, but my whole environment, including schools, telling me to think this way. I'm getting super confused. And then comes the bad kids that say, "Oh, let's see where the victim is today," right? Every gang, most gangs you see out there, they're recruiting. They're not recruiting a smart, strong, aggressive, self-aware person. They're 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 feeding off the bottom a bit. It's very smart how that works a lot of the time, right? And in gangs and stuff, which is tough, is that if you don't have a home life, you're getting that kind of love, quote unquote love, and that sense of unity or belonging from this group of individuals. It, it's so deep rooted, this whole conversation, because that 13 to 17 is so big. So for you, I mean, you pulled yourself out, you understood. So how did you not go past the line of no return? And you said something earlier where you said, man, my friends were like basically saying, where's the bottom out on this? Where's the bottom out on this? Which is interesting. A hundred percent. I mean, you get, you got it right, right? You look at like 13 to 15 year olds when they start getting involved in gangs. And I think it's different for men and women, right? And of I think course. that it's, it's a really important distinction. The young kids that are in school and they're acting up and they're fighting and they're acting out violently or that are going to school and they're not, you know, bringing their lunch because they don't have any food to bring with them from the house or they're wearing a pair of shoes that's falling apart. I mean, those are the kids, the older drug dealers are approaching and saying, hey, kid, why don't you take this bag and run it up the street to this guy here and you bring me back the money and I'm going to give you 20 bucks. And that's the easiest, you know, 20 bucks that that kid's ever made. Or here, why don't you come with me for the day because you're a young offender and you're going to hold this gun in your pocket for me and you're just going to hang around me all day and I'm going to give you, you know, $200. And that's the quickest $200 that he's ever seen in his life you know, a 15 years old. And all he has to do is hang out with a gun in his pocket. You don't have mm. to do anything for it. You're just there. Mm. And if you get caught, you know, you're, you don't worry. The, you know, the justice system will make sure that you're okay, except you're not okay, because now you're stuck in the justice system. Mm. That's, you know, one side of the equation that I think people in general have to open up their minds to. So the kids that are getting caught up in that system have to realize that there are serious repercussions for you know your entrance into the criminal justice system. I think parents need to realize this is happening. And I think that the greater society needs to realize that you know the young people that are walking around and carrying guns are doing so from this position of you know absolute either rejection, low self-esteem, uh, aggression that they just need to act out somewhere and they don't have any positive outlets for, right? The people that are being sucked in on one side aren't coming from, you know, positive places in their life where they're being told that they can accomplish anything, right? That message isn't being delivered to this segment of the population. And so just turning our backs on them isn't going to help them and it's not going to help society become less violent, right? Because the turnaround, of course, is that now this kid comes out of jail and he's angry and he's carrying a gun and now he's prepared to use it. And so so we have that side of the equation for men. Uh, I think for women, it's different. I think, you know, 13 to 17 is when we're seeing girls that are getting involved in human trafficking, mm. right? And it's the girls with low self-esteem who are yeah. meeting a really attractive, uh, <laughs> smooth talking mm -mm. dude. Uh, you know, I had I had a case once where my client was charged with another guy. The other guy was sort of the recruiter 
And he was going to libraries on Friday nights and finding the young girls who were studying alone because he knew that a girl studying by herself on a Friday night at the library probably hasn't had a date in her life. And that became the target. It wasn't, you know, looking for the girls in the clubs. I keep saying this, though. Can you imagine? Your clients, criminals are so brilliant that if they put their same energy and tactic, it's kind of like even you hear all these famous people, right? Hip-hop artists and everything who are like, even Jay-Z's like, man, I I dealt drugs. There was a one podcast. the The guy was basically saying he's like a zillionaire now. And he's like... I just took what I did from the streets into a legitimate business, but it's still a very organized business. That for the I just think of the logistics behind this guy. This guy thought he had the presence of mind to say, I'm gonna hit up a library. Why am I gonna hit up the library? Because I know any girl that's there on a Friday night. If there's Tinder back there, she ain't getting no swipes to the left, she's getting swipes to the wrong, right? Right. So then he's capitalizing on that, right? Yeah. So this is my point though, is that my God, like it, 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 it's just kind of easy prey, so to speak, right? If we have a visual right now and you're at your desk and you have yourself and you have your client and you have a 13 to 17 year old. By the way, I think this is a really funny podcast only because what you're basically doing, Jordana's mission in life is to empower other people so that she essentially will not have any clients in the end because they will be good people and not commit crimes. So if she does it good enough, she'll be already good people. Good people who make bad choices. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. But I find this so funny how a criminal defense lawyer is trying to really empower people to basically not meet them, not meet you, not show up at your office with a problem. And I think that's interesting. And it says something about you. Have you ever thought of it that way before? From that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I recognize that some of the things that I say are sort of counterintuitive to the work that I do. Uh, I mean, the reality is we're never going to stop drugs from flowing through our society. We're never going to stop the illegal gun trade, even if we put this ridiculous weapons ban in place in this country. Uh, We're never going to completely stop people from killing other people. There will always be some work. If I can send this message and it reaches people who truly turn their life around, that's phenomenal. You know, I feel like I've done something good as a human. And if that ends up hurting my bottom line, so be it. You know, that's that can't be the be all and end all to my existence. If I can actually help people from going through some of, you know, the more painful experiences of life and just use their own qualities or intelligence and resilience for good from the start, then I don't mind losing a couple of dollars at the end of the day. But you're kind of at this, like, you you are the light at the end of the tunnel. It's it's interesting because you're somebody who's sitting there, um, essentially, at the end of the road that you would have been on had you not made a change, and now advocating for these people, but then also defending these people, but then also saying, totally understand that they shouldn't be here. There was some bad choices made, and you did say in previous conversations... Sometimes a person is bad, you know, yes. they, they're recurring. This is not, this wasn't a one time, this but wasn't a mistake. A hundred percent. But this message isn't for those people, right? Those are for the people that actually like enjoy hurting people. They're not going to be moved by anything I have to say. Yeah. So I think that you're a hundred percent right. There are some 
people that we label as criminals who are bad people. There are people who belong in jail. There are people who absolutely cannot function in society without causing harm to others. And there's no question, you know, that segment of the population exists. But I'm talking to the people that are in jail because they feel like they can't make better choices for themselves or they feel like they've made so many bad choices that they can't turn their life around for themselves. Mm -hmm. And yet they still possess all of the good qualities, you know, that you and I as sort of bosses of our own industry would want in our employees, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's that sense of amazing loyalty and dedication and commitment and resilience and brilliance that if they could just turn to a pro-social activity, they really Mm -hmm. would thrive. You're very, you're very interesting. I wonder if you know how interesting you are. I'm still debating this. <laughs> all these text message conversations and all this. No, no, because it's, it's your, your contradiction. It's really interesting. You're, you're, you're. There's the yin and the yang, and I'm not. I, I don't even know if you're in the middle. I don't know. I don't know if you're on the the left or the right. Or it's interesting the way you operate because you're. I'm a Gemini. I get to be. Both. I know flip mode. I know. I know flip mode. Flip side, right? But. <laughs> But the conversations and the clients and the people that you deal with, you know, the average person in society might be scared shitless facts, right? Yeah. Or not even yeah. exposed to it. Not even, won't even, I mean, I, I, I've visited somebody in a prison as a visitor, so I've seen the environment. I've, you know, right. I felt for the first time that I was maybe kind of a prisoner because I had to get stripped down, like I'd not, not take off my clothes, but I got a guy fondling me, going through all my stuff just to get into the yeah. visitor area to sit there and the guy's basically like when you sit at this table like you know touchy touchy like and i'm like this person's just looking at me talking to this person i'm visiting and i'm like oh this is a different level and then i'm assessing all these guys that are in prison looking at each other as they're visiting people and then canteens and all these things it's a different you know what i mean it's a different world it's a whole different world it's, yeah it's a whole different world and that kind of brings me to my thing as when somebody gets in trouble for a very minute crime, gets locked up, it's not a pretty place. So maybe you went in there as a, somebody that's just like, oh, I just made a really bad mistake. I got an assault or something. I punched a guy at a bar. And now you're maybe rubbing shoulders with Johnny, the the guy that's like, yo, man, I'm just here waiting to get processed. But, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to kill you. Like, you, in there, you, you know, you go in for one charge, you come out with 25. There's lots of cases like that, especially in the United States, right? Those prisons are privatized. It's a business, right? 23-minute phone call, like a 10-minute phone call is like 25 bucks or something. Like, it's crazy. So if you were to have your client at your table right now and a 13 to 17-year-old is at the other end of the table and they ask you, based on your life, Jordana, and maybe they ask your client too, how do I not get to where your client is? What would you say to them? I don't ever want to meet you, Jordana. How do I not meet you? I'm 13 to 17. Simplest terms. What would you say to them? Slow down. Mm. Slow down. And before you react, just, just take a minute to think about it. Because I think that, you know, when you slow down and think what am I doing when I'm in this heated discussion and I go and grab a knife? You know, if you take a minute and think I'm selling drugs right now, this could, if I got caught, this could mean I go to jail. You know, when your friends are about to do a robbery and you get caught up in that excitement and the thrill and the peer pressure and, you know, whatever emotional 
baggage is going on in there. It's about, you know, we don't do enough when kids are young to talk about cost benefit analysis. You know, I didn't learn about cost benefit analysis until I was in my second year of university taking a course on the economics of law and policy. You know, why? Why aren't we teaching 12 year olds what it means to think? Because they're old enough to think they're old enough to start considering things and maybe they don't think about it in economic terms or economic language. But if you slow down and think the risk of doing this activity probably outweighs the benefit. If I'm going to make $2 selling this dime bag of weed, is it really worth going to jail? No. What am I going to get committing this robbery? A couple dollars? I'm going to steal someone's iPhone? Is that worth me going to jail? No. You know, most of my young offending clients who aren't, you know, doing like high scale uh, criminal activity. So I have some clients who are obviously very successful in the drug world, for example, uh, who have obviously made a lot of money in prostitution. Um, there are people who benefit significantly financially through criminal activity. Those people are few and far between, right? Most people that are involved in criminal activity, especially you know financial crimes, when I say to them at the end of the case, and I don't ever ask while I'm defending them, but when I say at the end of the day, you know, was it really worth it? Was it worth it? You know, for you to now be in the position you're in, it's few and far between that say yes, and and. I think if they took a minute before they committed that act and thought about whether or not it was worth it, uh, they'd realize it wasn't. You know, the trap is for the people that realize at the outset it's not worth it, but they feel like they're stuck and they have no other choice. Mm. And that's where the justice system has broken, right? It's the people who are coming up from places where they're so impoverished that they know that financially it's not worth it to sell drugs, but it's the only short-term solution that they have. Yeah. Or they're so hungry that they're out robbing people and that iPhone is worth it at the time. You know, and that's where we as a society need to do a better job of giving people better options. Yeah. But when you're talking about a 13 to 17 year old, there's few and far between that are able to like slow down and make that assessment. You, you know, a lot of the you think learning and do you think learning and thinking is the same thing? Learning no. and thinking. Okay. No. Why? This no. is good. Because we can teach someone that one plus one equals two. They've now learned that equation. That doesn't mean they've actually thought about it. Uh-huh. You know, you take a minute and think about what that means when you, for example, apply it to money or apply it to food. You know, thinking things through is about the application of something that you've learned. Okay, but let's apply That's this to I school. You remember when you're in junior high and you're doing these math equations? A lot of teachers would give you marks for showing your work to see how you got to the answer. Some teachers would say, even if you didn't get to the right answer, but you could show the work, I'll still give you some 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 points for it, right? When you talk to most teachers who are teaching those grades, you know what they say? Because I remember asking a teacher one time, I said, what are you trying to do here? Like, what are you teaching? Like, how's the student benefiting? And a lot of the teachers said this, we're teaching the whole process of, of, you know, kindergarten to grade 12 or 13, whatever province you're in, is to teach people how to learn. But it's not thinking. Because you just said learning and thinking is different. And I agree with that. I think thinking and learning are two completely different things. I think there's some commonalities and some parallel. But thinking and learning to me are two different things. Learning, 
well, I can learn all I want, but if I can't apply what I learned, there's no execution on it. Or even if you can, I mean, you can learn basic things, right? We've all learned that, you know, you stop at a stop sign, right? When you're driving your car, that's something you learn. It's a basic rule of driving, but you don't have to actually think about it, right? You see it, you stop. It's not something that you consider in your day to day, even if it's learned behavior, mm-hmm. right? People don't grow up automatically mm-hmm. stopping the stop signs. It's something that we're taught, you know, to really think about a situation is more to analyze it and to think beyond that situation. And that's really what, you know, a cost benefit analysis is about. It's about thinking about your behavior for a minute and thinking about, you know, weighing your options and where does this lead me? And I think that a lot of people don't do that. And it's not just in the application uh, to criminals, it's in the application to life, right? Mm. Like, you know, what choices are you making as far as school is concerned, as far as sports are concerned, right? Are you really good at sports? If so, maybe you want to pursue that. Let's think about that for a minute. Mm. You know, what does it take to be a star athlete? Is that Mm. something that you can actually apply to yourself? And I think that, you know, if we really sat and spent a minute analyze that behavior and helping young people to analyze their own self and their own situations, they would be better off. How much of, uh, how much of your cases for, uh, for the clients that you defend, how much is social media brought up into it as evidence like posts or, you know, some guy's got a picture with a gun and he's quoting lyrics. How much of how much of perception does come into the court and how much of it can be, you know, held against you? And in fact, maybe even become reality, because a lot of when I uh, the reason I ask that is for 13 to 17 year olds, they're rampant on social media. You know, Snapchat is the youngest platform in terms of demographic, you know, 13 to 17 year olds in drove every time i speak at a junior high school which in alberta bc grade seven to nine i get at least three to four messages via snapchat of people that said ryan i had a friend that committed suicide or ryan i have a friend that's thinking about committing suicide it's brutal it's absolutely brutal but they're running rampant on the on the snapchat and on social media so how much of that do you think impacts while they're overall health and well-being at that age and back then we you know you didn't have there was no snapchat at that age no. and and what's what's really we didn't even think, have msn at that age <laughs> it is it is not what you know it's what you can prove do you remember yeah, i see no. do you remember icq no you don't remember i had ICQ? a pager when i was that age when i was 16 years old i got a pager and that was like new technology there was yes. no yeah there was no messaging we didn't have cell phones. There was nothing. So if we so flip now it over, it's a whole world. Well, if we flip it over in business and and present day recruitment and stuff like that, when we think about social media, first of all, in terms of criminal and underworld, so just like social media can have a great impact on the world, it can also have a really bad impact on the world, right? When we talk about human trafficking and recruiting, man, just go to a hashtag on Instagram and start direct messaging. Let's do the eighteen cent rule, man. Hit it up. Hi, Jordana. How are you? I love your hair. Boom. Hi, Marcy. I love your eyes. How are you? Boom. You don't even have to go to the library like your client anymore. That guy is old school if he's going to the library. Why would I want to waste my time having to walk through the library? I got a whole library on Instagram, man. So And plenty of fish. Oh, man. And Tinder and you name it, right? Yeah. And it's crazy because I like to say we've came a long way as a society, but... I see those pictures that a lot of females put put up. That is not going to get you the right kind of Mr. Charming in some senses. You know what I'm saying? Or Mrs. 100%. Charming. 
So no, 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 a hundred percent. And we, we as a society do a disservice if we can't let that message out. And I, you know, that's part of my fear on this whole we too me too movement mm. where you know oh a woman shouldn't be judged on what she's wearing sure shouldn't okay, i agree we should not but that's not the reality of what's actually happening and it's definitely not the reality of what's actually happening on social media mm. and i think that that you know feminist movement where we can wear whatever we want and we can walk around with our breasts hanging out everywhere sure go ahead and see how that actually translates into reality because the attention that's bringing and who it's bringing it from you're doing a disservice to young women telling them that it's okay to walk around with everything hanging out because quite frankly we're certainly not telling men to walk around with everything hanging out we we're opening up the floodgates for uh people who aren't you know, properly filtering out the other people in their life. And they're doing it at such a young age. You know, you're right. 13 to 17 is the time where we should be, you know, teaching people to be focusing on what someone's really about from like a life perspective and a character perspective. And 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 we're not doing that. And social media doesn't allow for that because what we're focusing on is only the picture. And that's a little frightening. You know, we're not encouraging people to get to know someone by their personality. It's, are you attracted to them? Yes. Okay. Then you can communicate. Mm. When we talk about sex crimes, though, any good defense lawyer who's got a victim who's blaming said person is going to go on Instagram. is going to go on social media, going to hire a forensic digital person, whatever the expert pull up every damn post they can find. And if you see a half-naked picture, and this is the truth, even though this girl or guy, whatever, could be an actual victim, which probably are, what they're promoting and pushing on their social media can be held against them and actually used. It actually can't. No! We've, We've changed the laws considerably, and we now no longer have that ability and it's unbelievable actually how limited uh defense lawyers have become in defending their clients by virtue of someone's past sexual history it's actually uh they're called rape shield laws and there's a whole new vocabulary when did those come into play when did they start focusing on that is that because of social media last few years um were lawyers uh, trying to do that a lot and pull that in were, were lawyers trying to use that as a defense? Oh, prior historic- to that? yes. Historically, how a woman a woman was dressed played a huge part in whether or not, you know, it, mm. it was. And the, the thought behind it, of course, was if she's wearing a really short skirt, she probably wanted to have sex at night. And that yeah, argument yeah, doesn't fly. No, doesn't no that's fly. good, though. Or should it? That's you know, good. and or should it? That said, though, I don't think we should be promoting 13 to 17 year old girls walking around with their entire ass hanging out. Right. Like, I think that even though we're not giving the message that you deserve to have anything happen to you because you never a woman never deserves to have anything happen to them. But by the same token, you know, we've taken that age group and sexualized them to such a degree that I think that it's resulting in what we're seeing as far as human trafficking is concerned and what we're seeing as far as prostitution is concerned, because women are having a very difficult time, you know, making those decisions for themselves and they're opening up doors to situations and they're inviting certain situations into their lives that as a result of those choices is leading them down a path that they don't even realize until it's too late. Mm. What drives you on a day-to-day basis? 
How have you, you, you're somebody who's got a really good control over your emotions. You're somebody I'd love to like get you to be like inhibition though. I, I'd love to see you, love to manipulate you in the sense of um, just having you, just that open book come out. Cause you got so much in your head, you know, you're, you're super, you're super tactical with, with your emotions and stuff like that. I, I find it interesting. I, you know, I think it's like I said, right? Brick by brick. You're somebody who you really got to chip at, you know, over the course of, of time but it's interesting because you do have a you do have a lot of soft spot in you too you kind of have these little even through text message you're like hey i'm like interesting that sounds really excited and i'm trying to picture you saying that and i'm like because you're really laid back but you're you know you can tell like you do have a lot of safeguards up and and really trying to make sure that your boundaries are there obviously for the work that you do that's huge but then also personally too like how you who you let come into your your circle you seem you know very private and very you know you don't want you're not just having every tom dick and harry come into your life and you know make an appearance how is that just how you've always been is that is that as a result of what you've learned just in your journey i have uh, a really fantastic ability to compartmentalize mm. that in some circumstances people have said as a fault and in others it's a benefit it's always i don't ever remember not having that and so i can shift and put something in a box and sort of not worry about it uh and then take it out sort of analyze it put it away i don't need to let one situation in my life impact the other Mm. and i i do that emotionally very easily as well and so Mm. you know if i have a case for example that really does affect me on a personal level i have an easy time cutting that off from the case and focusing on the case and i think Mm. that's what sort of allowed me to achieve some of the success that I have, you know, even with the background that I have. And I've, I've always had that ability to compartmentalize. I don't know that, I don't know where it came from. I just always remember having it. And so I think that's what you see because sometimes you try to chip away and I'm like, no, 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 that's already in the back shelf. I've already boxed that up (laughs) that I don't really need to feel any way about it. I can analyze it. I can tell you about it and, and then I can put it away. Um, and I have a much, I have a, an easy time divorcing, you know, the feelings from the analysis, right? Mm. Where I don't necessarily need to think about how something made me feel or, you know, how I did, but I can analyze sort of where I've taken it and where I've gone through. And I think that's what's helped me get over what I've been through, right? I, 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 I think I buy a portion of that answer. I, I, I feel to that answer because... If you now present day, you turn 40, right? And you're like, oh my God. But now you're coming up and really some of those things that maybe you boxed away earlier have came back around where they've, they've forefronted. Because I feel like even as a human, even if we, you know, even if we're the most like machine oriented individual that's, you know, performing at a high level and everybody, you know, and you know, all those people that you respect that perform at a high level. They all have their little mantras and ways they kind of maneuver in their life to be able to, you know, keep up and have that longevity and be able to perform at their best on a day to day basis, whether that's cutting bad habits, creating, you know, certain habits in their life, routines, all that. But for you, you know, now that you've got to a place where you're, you you know, you obviously love and you're proud of, you're, you're kind of going all the way back and feeling it seems like you're kind of saying okay like i want to hmm, I'm, I'm thinking about that how has that impacted this how could that maybe help me impact other people 
you know, having that empathy slash whatever, right? Look what you wrote on your uh, 40th birthday, right? This is um, this is what I love, and this is how this is how Jordana ended off her 40th birthday post. Special thanks to everyone that helped me, hurt me, joined me, abandoned me, loved me, and hated me in this decade of transformation. You made me. I mean, man, that's beautiful because it, like that to me is like somebody that's like you're, you're always taking notes. So whether you come back to it 10 years from now or five, you seem to always come back because I always feel like if you do like people who can compartmentalize, it still has to go somewhere. It still has to sit somewhere. Maybe it, it can sit. And, I'm and not you're right, right, by like, the I'm way. Pe- I'm I'm a, I'm not right. I'm just saying how my perception of it is. Like I don't. I'm. There's no right or wrong. I'm just kind of right. asking. So I mean, the compartmentalizing portion is what allows me to go ahead, right? I don't dwell in the things that have happened, even though I 100% take stock of the the past is having pushed me to this point and me being able to utilize it, right? Mm. And so, like you know, for example, the passion that I can given my submissions fighting for a young woman who you know mm. was unbelievably impaired and took a life it's not because i excuse or or um yeah or excuse that behavior in any way nor am i that person anymore who would be in that situation right like i'm so yeah. far removed from that but i still can think for a minute about mm. what that would have been like right being so heavily impaired that you don't even consider the consequences of getting into that car and you don't for a minute think that you could possibly cause someone else's death or hurt someone else's death and i can imagine you know what that moment was like for her and sort of capture that in order to argue for her genuinely and and forcefully and then it's it's done i don't necessarily hold that with me or keep it with me right Mm. like and I couldn't. It would be really unhealthy, of you know, and you're right. I see myself in a lot of my clients and I can see how, you know, and sometimes like the biggest emotion is guilt, right? Like, why did I get out and, and they didn't? Mm, and I have that in a lot of my situations. Yeah. Why was I able to like to like cut off when I did and, and keep myself going on this path? And so, you know, if anything, that's probably the one thing that I carry with me. But if I really let it carry with me, it would drag me back. And so you just got to it off right and so i guess that's that guilt and empathy that you just said that's the impact though because when you think about it like i i come across so many people i'm i i don't like people a lot i'm very open about this i (laughs) i like my anna i like my dog i like my kids my family my circles of extremely small growing up i was a sports guy had lots of friends all this i knew everybody but man my my circle was on one hand you know, borderline, like, I was the guy that got along with everybody, but I was almost borderline a loner. I'd do my thing. I didn't want to go to the mall with 10 people deep. I always feel like a general never travels with their army. You know, I'm very, very tactical in the way that I think about life. I, I can go and sit in a restaurant all by myself, you know? I married right. my wife because she's the only human being I absolutely love to spend my time with. And we get along, and it's she kicks my ass, you know? And I need somebody that right. kicks my ass. But what you said about, you know, the guilt and everything, to me, when I look at your TED Talk and I look at some of the things you're doing, in order to have a true impact, it's your full truth that's really going to propel you into to stratospheres. Because when I talk to people, and I'm only using myself only because I'm the one that's having conversations, people have such a hard time 
of either they let a situation just barricade them. Like they just let them, they let that situation overwhelm them. And I think that's not good either right. because that'll screw you up. Or they're like, I'm, I'm a machine. I'm guarded. I'm guarded. Nobody's getting in my, I'm a machine. I'm a machine. I'm a machine. Nobody's, nobody's making me cry. I have, I have, no, no. Like, I'm like, okay, that's like way too over to the other side. Like, right. you're still a human being, right? So I find you interesting because I, I think you actually have a good, uh, a good balance on it. But you're tough. You're tough. Holy, <laughs> I can tell you're tough. I need to see some courtroom footage of you. It's got it's got it's got to be epic. You got to bring in a vlog, man. I'm telling you. Tell the judge, let it come in. Let it come in. Um, but that being said, uh, we're coming to the end here. So again, you know, you're 13 to 17. You had a sense of guilt as to, hey, how did I make it out? What are just some takeaways that you can unpack if you're thinking about your own situation? Fast forwarding until now that maybe the, you know some of those individuals can avoid those mistakes you made that cost you a lot of time, energy, and anguish that they can fast track over. Assuming that, and again, everybody who's listening to this, I know your situation's hell. There's just no, there's bad situations out there, abuse, all that. I can't empathize to with anybody on an individual basis. I always have respect for people's situation, how they feel about it. And I'm, I, I can't stand when people say, I know how you feel. I hate that. I, it, it's one right? of my pet peeves. Because I'm like, you don't know how I feel. But I appreciate that you're trying to. But just don't say that. Give me a hug. Sit beside me. That's it. Hear me out. Go through it with me. But just just let me be. What would you say to everybody as an end off? Boom. boom I, I always boom, say boom. I, can, I can only imagine what you're feeling right now. I never, I never tell people I know what you're feeling right now. Because I don't. I think we all deal with situations and different emotions and I think you know to the 13 to 17 year old kids out there that are struggling like really struggling internally um you know it's so cliche but number one it does get better but the decisions that you make today are going to shape maybe the next 10 20 maybe even the rest of your life and so you know, the people that you're going to spend your time with, the people that you're going to trust and open up to, and just take a minute to consider whether or not they actually have your best interest in mind. And I think that, you know, the decisions that we make and the people that we bring into our circle during that age group really dictate more than just, you know, that year in school or that summer. And they really carry through throughout the next few years of your life. And so if you can find yourself surrounded by people that are going in the direction you want to be, you end up moving in that circle and in that direction. Mm, beautifully said. Beautifully said. Uh, Jordana, our first episode of many. I'm very happy about yes. this. We're going to have a Me lot as of well. fun. Thank you. We're going to have a lot you. of fun. Uh, everybody, this uh, is the conclusion of our episode. Thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by JHG Law Firm, which is Jordana's baby that she's grew, that according to her Instagram post, feeds lawyers, has bought her a supercar, has helped numerous people. She's having fun. She's building it. Um, I will put all her information in the show notes description so you know where to find her. Um, I won't say... Um, go visit her unless you absolutely need. She's amazing. Maybe you know somebody that needs her services. Don't tell me who it is. I don't want to know. Keep it confidential. <laughs> but I will link all her information uh, in uh, in the show notes. Um, again, thank you everyone for listening. This has been a, an amazing journey. Uh, having a ton of fun doing this. Thank you for all the feedback. 
uh, we had two messages. We had two messages yesterday from Dubai. Could you imagine that? And they actually half the message wow. was in Arabic, and then half the message was in English, and it was super That's humbling. Awesome. But, uh, everyone, thank you for listening. And again, curiosity is our mandate. Bye.